0: Hello and welcome to the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. Let's listen in. Hi everybody and welcome. My name is David Bruner. I'm one of the pastors here at Knox. I'm very glad you're all with us for this uh, installment of our Long Story Short class. We are in week eight. Week eight, so we're about halfway through um, and we're gonna be turning to the New Testament in just a couple weeks. Today, we are looking at the kingdom, so we'll be spending tonight talking mostly about the kings of Israel as they're depicted in scripture, and we're going to focus on two of them in particular. Before we do that, let's pray together. Good and gracious God, our Father in heaven, thanks for gathering us together tonight. We give you thanks and praise that um, we are able to set aside our busy lives and dedicate this short time to studying holy scripture. We pray, Jesus, that you would help us understand it with our hearts and with our minds also, knowing that we are called to love you with all our hearts and minds and spirit. We ask that you would be present here tonight in your son's holy name, amen. Okay, so uh, have any of you heard of the theologian David Byrne? He was in a famous band called The Talking Heads. Peg knows what I'm on about, right? So you remember the video with him in the big suit. Uh, how did I get here? That's the question we're asking. Uh, That's always where I like to start because we sometimes make fairly big jumps between different parts of the scripture, and it helps us keep track of where we are. So we're going to talk a little bit about how we got from last week's engagement with Joshua to this week. Um, Some of this may be uh, review for you. If you listen closely to the sermon this past Sunday, that's okay. A little review never hurt anyone, especially when it comes to the Bible. So last week we looked at Joshua, the story of Israel entering the promised land. This week we are looking at the story of Israel's kings and its kingdom, which is largely found in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. So 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, in addition, we'll also be looking at a few passages from 1st and 2nd Chronicles. 1st and 2nd Chronicles cover a lot of the same material as First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, with a slightly different perspective. So it's uh, interesting to look at those. Okay. So this past Sunday, we uh, you heard a sermon on 1 Samuel eight. Um, I'll recap the basic message of that for you now. So 1 Samuel eight is the story of Israel's elders coming to Samuel. Samuel is the last judge of Israel, and they ask him for a king, and they want to be a king, they want to have a king like other nations. And I was reading an article, and it made this point, and I wish I had put this in my sermon, because it was such a good way of putting it. So in the ancient world, usually kings were thought to be put on the throne from from above, so to speak. So they were thought to be put on the throne by divine fiat. So if you look at other ancient Near Eastern countries like Babylon, for instance, essentially they would say there is a God, God's name is so and so, and God has put this person on the throne, right? The idea Some of you have heard of the idea of the divine right of kings. This is an idea that develops kind of in the Middle Ages, moving into the modern period to explain why kings have the right to rule. And it's essentially a justification of monarchy that says, God put me on the throne. Isn't it interesting that that's not at all what happens in Israel, at least in terms of the origination of the monarchy? In Israel, the monarchy is very much from below. At least in 1 Samuel 8, it is instituted by a divine concession to the people of Israel. God and Samuel, his faithful servant, are very reluctant to institute any kingship at all. Samuel reluctantly agrees. He anoints Saul as king, but not before offering a stern warning about the greed and oppression they will experience at his hands. This is the long passage I talked about on Sunday where um, Samuel uses the verb take six times, right? He's going to take this from you. He's going to take that from you. He's going to take all your money. He's going to take all your livestock. Take, 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 take. That's the background for the discussion I want to have today. As 1 Samuel 8 might suggest, it's not the case that the Old Testament is uniformly in favor of the kings of Israel. Which might surprise you, right? You would think, okay, the the Old Testament is a document produced by the Israelite people. They're the ones that kind of put it together. You would expect it to say, our kings were the best, and they're terrific, yay! Far from it. Uh, The Old Testament is very ambivalent about the kings. And you see one part of that ambivalence right there in 1 Samuel 8. We'll give you a king if you want, but he will oppress you. He is going to take all your money. You will become his slaves. In particular today, we're going to expand on this kind of ambivalence. We're going to explore it a little bit more. We're going to look at two figures two kings that are found in the old testament one is king david how many of you have heard of king david everybody's raising their hands i pretty much expect that he's certainly the most well-known old testament king he is also the paradigm in the old testament of the good king so uh a paradigm if you if you don't know is kind of like an example or an illustration So in the eyes of the Old Testament, David is the perfect illustration of what it means to be a good king. We're also going to look at a guy named Jeroboam. How many of you have heard of Jeroboam? I see a few hands meagerly raised. Uh, Maybe you heard his name at a bar once. I don't know. Um, So Jeroboam becomes almost equally important the paradigm or illustration of the bad king. Jeroboam the illustration of the bad king. Um, to flesh that out, we're going to do a lot of rehearsing the scriptural story tonight. So um, last week, we were almost totally focused on a particular passage on Joshua 6. Tonight, we're going to move around a lot more, and I hope to fill in some of the gaps in your knowledge in the biblical story. As always, I hope you'll raise your hand and interrupt me if you have a question. Um, and Don, our microphone volunteer, will come to you. Okay, so let's talk about David, the good king. Let me talk to you first about how David gets on the throne. So David is not the first king of Israel. The first king of Israel is Saul. So right after First Samuel 8, when samuel begrudgingly says fine i'll i'll anoint you guys a king if you really want one he goes and he anoints saul so anointing was just what they did to make someone a king it was a ritual of coronation so the the prophet or the judge had some oil usually some olive oil since it's the middle east and he would pour it all over the king and it was a sign of the spirit's presence um, and a sign of what had occurred. So Saul, Samuel anoints Saul. That happens in 1 Samuel 9 and 10. David is not part of Saul's family. He does not come from royal background. It's not a story where David's the son of the king, but he's raised in relative obscurity, and then halfway through the movie, he rediscovers. No, he's just a shepherd. So... Um, Generally speaking, this already that fact indicates that some sort of conflict is going to happen. Because how do monarchies work? Who when a king dies, who's supposed to reign after the king? His son. Yeah, that's correct. His son or failing if failing that, possibly his daughter, right? Depending on how the monarchy works. David's not related to Saul, so you know there's going to be some action there. David is appointed to be king by Samuel. David is appointed in response to what Scripture describes as Saul's moral and spiritual shortcomings. And we saw one of these last week. Um, so pretty much, Saul, Saul does not have much of a honeymoon period in the Old Testament. So he's, Samuel agrees to make a king in 1 Samuel 8, 1 Samuel 9 and 10 is the story of him, um, sort of uh, the, the choosing of Saul and his anointing as king. And then in 1 Samuel 13, 14, and 15, you get three big goofs by Saul. Um, Saul is disobedient in regard to a sacrifice. He makes a rash oath. And then uh, in 1 Samuel 15, there's a failure to properly dispose of loot won in battle. Does anyone remember the specific detail of that story from last week?
1: He was supposed to get rid of all the cattle and the sheep and all of the goods, and he kept the goods to continue building. Mm-hmm. Sorry. You got it. <laughs> and he
0: kept the livestock to enrich. That, that's correct, yeah. And he, he also kept the, the king. So, which you do because the king has wealthy and influential friends and you can ransom the king and it's a great way to get a nice nest egg for yourself so that you can have a place in whatever the ancient Near East equivalent of Palm Springs was, right? So, uh, there. in other words, this is a self-interested action and it relates, right? Because last week in Joshua 6, we looked at that Hebrew word harem, which means totally wipe out. And we talked about how It's not a sign of God being bloodthirsty. It's actually God commanding Israel to be not self-interested in how they wage war. And Saul is self-interested in how he wages war. He does not observe the harem, which is enough to get him in trouble with Samuel and with God. So well before he does that, two chapters earlier in 1 Samuel 13, Samuel tells Saul that he's in trouble. So you can see it up there on the screen. He says, you have done foolishly you have not kept the commandment of the Lord. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be a ruler over his people. So interestingly, at this point in the story, we, the reader, have not yet met David. We don't know who the author is talking about, clearly the author has in mind the, the future king who will be introduced. And in the very next chapter, God sends Samuel to find the new king. Um, so you can see here in First Samuel 16, God says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Get over him, he's terrible. I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil, why? Because you're gonna anoint someone and set out, uh, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. So, show of hands, how many of you know the famous story of David being selected to be king? You see a few hands, right? So, essentially, God's told Samuel to go to Jesse in Bethlehem, the city of David, and he says one of his sons is going to be the king. And David has like seven brothers or something like that. I forget the specific details, but they're all taller and handsomer than he is. And David is kind of short and ruddy, red, red-faced. And so Samuel goes through all of his brothers one by one, and God tells him, nope, not him, nope, not him. And then finally he turns to Jesse and he actually says, don't you have any other children? And Jesse says, well, yeah, the youngest one the one who's the least significant by the standards of the ancient Near East is he's out in the field, he's keeping the sheep, but clearly you don't want him, and Samuel says, bring him here, and then God says, that's the one. Famous story, wonderful story. So that's how David becomes king. What's the problem in this scenario?
2: Yes, that means one of his sons Mm -hmm. would normally be king.
0: And who's still on the throne? Saul. Saul. So effectively what happens is you get this wild and crazy period in Israel's life where there are two kings who have both been anointed. So you get this long and fascinating power struggle between the two kings where for a while they're friends, for a while they're enemies. Long story short, it's the name of this class, um, eventually Saul and his son, and heir, Jonathan, are killed in battle. That happens at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel 31. So David's predecessor as king of Israel is killed. The way is open for David to claim the throne himself. Uh, David is declared king and gradually consolidates control over all of Israel. The capstone of his ascent to the throne is his conquering Jerusalem. So at this point in the biblical story, Jerusalem had not been a part of Israel's land. They didn't control it. So he conquers it in 2 Samuel 5, and there's this marvelous moment in 2 Samuel 6 where David uh, enters the city at the head of a big parade with much fanfare, marching along with the Ark of the Covenant. So that's the moment when the dwelling place of the ark is officially sort of moved to Jerusalem. So it takes up residence there. That's a lot of information. Before we read First Chronicles 17, let me stop and ask if you have any questions about what the information I've just shared with you about David.
1: About, about how long did David and Saul rule and how did they divide their ruling?
0: So, um, I can't tell you off the top of my head. The Bible says that David ruled for about 40 years, which as we've discussed previously is kind of a generalized term and not super specific. Um, Scripture says David ruled until, uh, died in office as it were. He passed away still being king and ascended to the throne when he was pretty young. So we can probably assume that he ruled at least for several decades. Um Saul's reign is depicted as much shorter, probably 10 years or less. If that um, most of the commentaries produce a kind of conjectural list of the reigns of many of the different early kings, which I can share with you if you're really curious. But David's reign was long. Saul's reign was short.
2: But the overlap.
0: Oh, that yeah, that I'm not sure about, so. Yeah, a couple of years would be my guess. Anything else I can explain? This is a lot of background so far. Are you all with me? Okay, good. So, now what I want you to do is turn to First Chronicles 17, verses 1 through 15. This was one of the texts that was our assigned reading for last week, so it might be familiar to some of you. But... Um, we're going to take a minute and read it. I'll read it out loud for us, and then we'll do our usual deal and turn to a neighbor and discuss it with them. Okay, so this is First Chronicles 17, verses 1 through 15. Now, when David settled in his house, God said to the prophet Nathan, I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan said to David, do all that you have in mind, for God is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, you shall not build me a house to live in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought out Israel to this very day, but I have lived in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies before you, And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall wear them down no more as they did formerly from that from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever." In accordance with all these words and all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Okay, turn to a neighbor, come up with a comment or a question. Okay, so let's come back together. Uh, What's the most interesting thing that your neighbor said? Um, Or what's the most interesting comment or question that you have?
2: This is Ken's comment. He said that he he likened the um, fanfare of the Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem to Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And I thought that was an interesting connection.
0: Yes. And I think that's probably one of several Old Testament references that Jesus might be trading on when he does that. And also kind of standing on its head, right? Because David wanted everyone to know how big and tough he was, but Jesus did something a little different. Yeah. What else?
3: Is this foretelling Jesus coming? You know, when they talk about this lineage from David will be forever. I'm not going to take anything away from you. It will always be your ancestors who will have some kind of power or leadership within the Israeli Hebrew nation? Um,
0: I think that's a great question. What do you all think? So Diane's question is, you know, is that promise that God makes to David that a descendant of his will always be on the throne? Is that about Jesus?
2: Yes, in my opinion,
0: it is. Okay. That's, that's certainly true. Does anyone else want to, want to expand on that?
2: The other interesting thing that we talked about was um, David's son, Solomon, was born of Bathsheba, which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Yep. So from an illicit coupling or whatever you want to call it, sure, it was the house of David. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other thing I found interesting at the end of it the reason Jesus was born in the house of David was because of Joseph, not mm-hmm. Mary, and he really wasn't a son of Joseph.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting, that's an interesting perspective. Thank you, Frank. So I think part of what's interesting about your question, Diane, is we'll, we'll talk about this more in a second. So God m- d- makes this lavish promise to David that a, a a child of you, uh, uh, one of your descendants will always be on the throne and it's unconditional. So if you look at the Exodus, when God makes the covenant with the people, he says, I'm going to be your God as long as you, as long as you do these things. And if you don't do those things, you can come and get forgiveness, but you you know, do the right things. And here it's kind of a blank check. And this does have very significant ramifications within later Jewish history and identity, and it also has very significant ramifications for Christians. So Christians very quickly begin to speak about Jesus as the son of David, as the Messiah that is expected. So through Christian eyes, yes, definitely, I believe this is about Jesus. did the person or people who wrote this down initially have jesus in mind C- certainly not
3: yes one of the one of the questions that, that came to mind when reading those 15 verses there was a a pretty detailed discussion about about uh, not building a cedar house mm-hmm. for david but yet at the end it says the lord will build you a house yeah and and I don't think that was actually a, a physical residence. I think it was something related to the ancestry and, and the family.
0: Yeah, that, that's correct. It's a total uh, a wonderful instance of Old Testament wordplay that makes sense in English, where David wants to build the Lord a physical house. And God says, no, you're not going to do that. Your son will do that. But I'm going to build you a house in the sense of a strong dynastic family.
1: Well, Cheryl, you were the one that said that it seems like there's a parallel to this between um, Moses being, leading everybody to the promised land, but not going in himself. Hmm. David wasn't able to be the one that got to build the temple, but his Hmm. son did. So it's like you're at the threshold or you're at the,
0: whatever, the boundary, but, but. Almost there, but not quite. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Thank you, Cheryl. So, David, I was thinking that the house analogy was
2: more the kingdom is in heaven. My house will be in heaven. Don't think that it's going to be on earth. Yeah. And I'm going to have a king come here and pretty much, as it said, will be ruler of my house up there. Sure. And don't build a house with the covenant because the covenant is in here, is with you, not in a house. That's kind of how I read that.
0: Yeah, uh, that's really interesting, Ken. So what's interesting is that Solomon is the one who eventually goes on to complete the temple. And when uh, David wants to build God a house, he's talking about a temple, so a physical place. And it's actually, we Christians look at that and think, well, clearly... We tend to look at that and, and make it about heaven, partly because that's how we think of where God's dwelling place is. It's, all, it's very difficult for us to grasp the blunt, I mean, quite literal idea that the Hebrews had—that the dwelling place of God was in the temple, and that you know the the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies, which was in the holies, and like there were all these layers of, of the temple construction. And, But it's absolutely essential to the Hebrew mindset, especially in the later part of the Old Testament, that that was where God was. And, and so if you were a Hebrew, the, after the construction of the temple, the place where you were supposed to worship was the temple, period, the end. And a lot of what we'll see, a lot of the controversies in ancient Israel arise partly because people start worshiping at other places, and this tends to slide into worshiping other gods at these other places, blah, 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 blah. But um, this is why it's such an enormous spiritual crisis when the Babylonians eventually come in and destroy the temple. Because it's, it's, um, from their point of view, the Hebrew attitude had long been, God lives in our city. And God has made this unconditional promise to David and his line that they'll always be on the throne. So <laughs> the Babylonians may come and they may make a lot of noise, but they're never gonna come into the city and destroy us. And that's exactly what happened. So we as Christians have a different attitude towards the temple, but the ancient Jews definitely thought of God dwelling in, in, in person as it were there. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that.
2: It just occurred to me that the uh, the temple was destroyed, as you said. Oh, yeah. It was rebuilt. Yep. And then it was destroyed again, as Christ predicted. And when Christ died, the only person to go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest. Mm-hmm. And the only person to go into the anywhere close to that was Jews. You know, yeah. And anybody else couldn't go there. Right. Women couldn't go there, and foreigners couldn't go there. Right. When Jesus died, the temple curtain was split. Right. And we interpret that as... God, we can go directly to God. We don't need the priest, and it's for everybody. Yeah,
0: so I, th- I think that's very valuable, right? So part of what this is, this is one reason why I love the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, best book in the Bible, just saying. Um, it has a lot of awesome stuff to say about the temple, and one of the things that Paul says is, the church is the temple. The church which is composed of Jews and Gentiles. So, in the old temple in Jerusalem, you know, you had the, the inner court was only for Jewish men, and then you had a court outside of that for Jewish women, and then right outside was the so-called court of the Gentiles, which is where ordinary schmoes like you and me who weren't Jewish would be allowed to go, but no further. And yeah, I mean, Christianity says, okay, God's dwelling place, the God work, the place where God really and unambiguously dwells, is among his holy people, the church of God. Which is, and and only if you get how literal they were about God living in the temple, can you get how literal Paul is about God dwelling in the church. So the next time someone says, well, I believe in Jesus, but I can worship him on my own. I don't need church to do that. You just say, go and read 1 Corinthians, the best book of the Bible. Because I think if you understand what Paul's saying there, he totally nails it. Anyway, okay, let me keep going. Um, Thank you for your questions. This is really good. So this slide, we've touched a little bit on already. Note the astonishing nature of the promise God makes to David here. A son of David, someone in David's line is going to be on the throne forever. Saul's the first king. David is the one with whom God makes this particular covenant. And we talked before about how God makes a covenant, especially with Moses also with Abraham, um, here this one is is unconditional, as opposed to the one from Exodus.
1: This is probably going back a bit, but has David now proved himself as king? So God decided, "Yep, you're it," because um, Saul didn't do a very good job. And did God make any promise to Saul that he? I mean, he didn't, but right? Like, and and why is David the one? Like, yep, you. <laughs>
0: Great question. And the answer as so many things in the Bible is very mysterious. So let me, let's talk about this. Um, so why does God make this extravagant promise to David? In some ways, David is just a better king than Saul, than many of the other kings of Israel. He is brave and powerful in battle. Many of you know the story of David and Goliath, for instance. He is seemingly scrupulous about refusing to lay violent hands on Saul. So there's a a wonderful story uh, in 1 Samuel about David being out in the wilderness, kind of Robin Hood style. So there's a king on the throne and David is out in the wilderness with his band of merry men. And Saul comes out into the wilderness looking for him. And David has the opportunity to sneak up on him unawares and stab him in the back if he chooses and instead David sneaks up on him and snips off a little bit of his robe and then later returns it to him in order to say I could have killed you Saul I had opportunity but I did not do it and part of what's intriguing about David's character in those stories right is that he he won't lay violent hands on Saul even though he's his rival to the throne Most importantly, he is a passionate and faithful worshiper of God who does not succumb to idolatry or disobey a direct divine command. So Solomon eventually succumbs to idolatry. Saul disobeys divine commands. His own moral failings do have a significant impact on Israel. So by the time you get into 2 Samuel, that's when you get the story of David and Bathsheba. so his initial liaison with Bathsheba is certainly, certainly immoral. She is married to another man. He, she later becomes his lawfully wedded wife, but only after he's had her husband murdered. So that kind of undoes the lawfully wedded part. Um, so, and what happens after that is that there's a violent revolt So says 2 Samuel. So Absalom, David's oldest son, for reasons unrelated to this, winds up rising up in revolt against his father. And the rebellion is put down violently, Absalom dies, David's heart is broken. It's a very sad, compelling story. So all that's to say, Beth, you know, why does God choose David? Part of it has to do with the fact that David is is a good king part of it has to is just the mystery of God. So
1: everything that you just said suggests there's been a long time
0: between Saul being killed and God's promise so to David. So s- some of those things happen before God makes his promise to David. Um, some of them happen after. So God makes the promise in 2 Samuel 7. We looked at the version from 2 2- Chronicles, but 2 Samuel 7 is where it happens in uh, the Samuel series, and then David and Bathsheba, I believe, is 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So if you wanted to, you could certainly say, well, David was doing all right, and so God made him this promise, and then a few chapters later, David got full of himself and slipped and fell, right? I think there's a profound mystery, right? So this goes back to what we saw earlier, how odd of God to choose the Jews, right? Why does God choose the Jews rather than 15th century Japanese people? On, uh, on some level, it must have been fitting and appropriate. On another level, I think it shows God's gratuitous grace that there, there may have been nothing in particular about David or about the Jews as a people group other than that God chose them. Okay, so now we're going to talk about Jeroboam, the bad king. So all of you had heard of David. David's the most famous good king in the Bible. He's the paradigm of a good king. Now we're going to talk about Jeroboam, the bad king. My name is David. I've met a lot of other Davids in my life. I've never met one Jeroboam. Maybe if you go to Israel, I will say in my, my limited experience with people from Israel, they do like to name folks after um, characters from the Old Testament, including some of the more obscure people in the Old Testament. So there may be a few Jeroboam's there, but Jeroboam is a pretty bad dude. So I'd be surprised if it were the case even there. David dies and is succeeded by his son Solomon. How many of you have heard of Solomon? Almost all of us, right? He's a familiar guy. Uh, That happens in 1 Kings two. Solomon is a good king in many ways. He is not as good as David, at least in the eyes of the Bible. Some of you may be familiar with the story from 1 Kings 3, where God comes to Solomon in a dream and says, okay, Solomon, what do you want? Tell me what you want, and I'll give it to you. And does anyone know what Solomon says? Wisdom. Wisdom. Yes, Solomon says, I don't want riches. I don't want fame or fortune. Just give me wisdom. And this request pleases God. And so God says, yes, I will give you wisdom, and also, I will give you fame and fortune and riches and everything that you didn't ask for because this request pleases me. It's a very beautiful, lovely story. Does anyone know what famous story follows immediately after Solomon asks for wisdom? Uh, two women claiming yes. the same baby. Frank's bad a thousand tonight. Well done, yeah. So the, the famous story about the two women having a dispute over the baby and who the baby belongs to. And Solomon famously resolves it by saying, well, if they can't decide, cut the baby in half and let them each have half of it. And one of them says, fine, go ahead. And the other one says, oh, no, 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 no. And Solomon says, that's the mother, right? So it's, it's Solomon's wisdom put into practice. So Solomon is a wise man. And we also see him. He does, in fact, build and complete the temple. So it's in 2 Chronicles 6-7. I think that was some of the reading. You can also read the version you find in Kings, 1 Kings 6 and 8. The temple is very lavishly decorated. So gold, silver, what, what may have you. Quite remarkable. Yet Solomon also falls into idolatry. He winds up worshiping gods other than the Lord. Even building houses of worship for foreign deities within Israel. So famously, the story is that Solomon has a million wives and a million concubines. It's not a million, it, it, that's, it's like several hundred. It's far more than any reasonable human being would ever want to have. And some of them are foreign born. And this entices him to begin practicing the religion of his wives along with um, the Judaic religion. So the, the characteristic concern of this part of the Hebrew Bible for faithfulness to the Jewish God. Unique faithfulness to the Jewish God. Um, Religious monogamy, if you will. Um, It is against the background of Solomon's failures that Jeroboam first comes on the scene as the leader of a revolt against Solomon. So that's 1 Kings 11. So Jeroboam is no relation to Solomon. He is not a son of his. Solomon's son, and this is a very confusing touch. Solomon's son is named Rehoboam. So you got Jeroboam, who's not related to Solomon, and you got Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son. It's a little confusing. I'll keep explaining it so it'll stick in your head. Um, due in part to the foolishness of Solomon's son, King Rehoboam, the 10 Northern tribes of Israel eventually revolt and establish their own kingdom under Jeroboam. Um, And this is where you get the so-called divided kingdom. So all 12 tribes of Israel, the Bible tells us are united under David. What you find in the Northern kingdom is, uh, the Northern kingdom is called Israel and it's ruled by Jeroboam, the guy who is not related to Solomon. The Southern kingdom is called Judah, and it's ruled by Rehoboam, the guy who is related to Solomon. The way I remember this is that Judah has Jerusalem. So the southern kingdom is where Jerusalem is, that's the city of David. They have the Ark of the Covenant, but it's much smaller geographically. All 10, they only have two of the 12 tribes, 10 of them are up north. In many ways, aspects of Jeroboam's rise to the throne kind of mirror or parody david's own rise to the throne um it's possible that there is a sense in which they're painting uh jeroboam as like the anti-david which would make perfect sense given how he's depicted throughout the old testament so both david and jeroboam are not part of the royal household they're not in line for the throne Both are appointed in response to the sins and mistakes of another king. So David's appointed in response to Saul's errors and sins. Uh, Jeroboam comes to the throne in part due to the, the idolatry of King Solomon. And both are called to kingship by a prophetic figure. So Samuel is the one who calls David to the throne in response to God's leading. There's a prophet named Ahijah who does this for Jeroboam. And he, he basically grabs Jeroboam and says, okay, God's going to make a king out of you to punish Solomon. So that's in 1 Kings 11. So there's sort of, Jeroboam is kind of the funhouse mirror image of David. So he's like, David, if you 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 stand in front of a funhouse mirror and your image is distorted and there are some similar features to how you think you normally look, but you think, gosh, my neck isn't three feet wide. Why is it looking like that, right? That's what Jeroboam is like. The key contrast, of course, is that David loves God, faithfully propagates true worship, and unifies the kingdom, while Jeroboam does the opposite. He pursues power and self-interest, propagates false worship, and divides the kingdom. So he is the one who is uh, significantly responsible for ending the United Kingdom, which divides into the two kingdoms that we've discussed previously. Are you all with me at this point? Okay. So let's read some Bible. So what I want you to do is look at first Kings chapter 12. Yeah, let's just look at, 1 Kings 12, verses 20 through 33. So I'm going to read these out loud. 1 Kings 12, 20 through 33. When all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was no one who followed the house of David except the tribe of Judah alone. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, He assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen troops to fight against the house of Israel, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaniah, the man of God. Say to King Rehoboam of Judah, son of Solomon, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your kindred, the people of Israel. Let everyone go home for this thing is from me. So they heeded the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and resided there. He went out from there and built Penuel. And then Jeroboam said to himself, now the kingdom may well revert to the house of David. If this people continues to go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, The heart of this people will turn again to their master, King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. He said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one at Bethel and before the other as far as Dan. He also made houses on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not Levites. Jeroboam appointed a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he alone had devised. He appointed a festival for the people of Israel, and he went up to the altar to offer incense. Take a moment, turn to your neighbor, ask a question, make a comment, talk about this passage. We'll come back in a moment. All right. Why don't we come back together? So I'd love to hear your questions and your comments about this this passage. How many of you had read this passage ever before? A few, not very many. So, what did you think? What were your comments and questions? The the comment that that uh, that I made was that
3: the. The instructions to um, Rehobbin to not take his army of one hundred eighty thousand yeah. and go in and, and conquer the the north at that time. I think maybe it was uh, God providing an opportunity to, to clearly demonstrate the foolishness and self service of, Je- of Jehovah, yeah, the the bad king. I mm. and I think that. Uh, you know, giving, giving him the opportunity, and God knew that he was gonna do this, to build the golden calves and, and set up that kind of a structure yeah, was, was something that uh, I think was going to be one of the many, many lessons that the Jewish people are gonna learn over that period of time.
0: Yeah, sure.
2: Thank you. So God said, leave him alone, don't hurt him. Yeah. They have a free will let's see what they do and that's what i saw the whole passage about this is what we're doing really not relating to what god wants done this is what we want to do
0: okay that's how i kind of interpreted that passage yeah sure so yeah i mean i think a lot of this one of the things that makes um the narratives about the kings challenging but also really interesting and rich is that there's god is very active in the story But there's also people doing all kinds of stuff that God doesn't want done. (laughs) So it's, you know, like the story of Joseph where all kinds of bad stuff happens, but God's also at work in it in a mysterious way. So here too, right? I mean, so what God says is I forbid uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom, to fight. You guys are not going to kill each other in droves. But nevertheless, both kingdoms still kind of go their own way and wind up drifting far away from God, which is clearly not what God wants either. So God's forbidding certain things and then permitting other things to to go on, although he doesn't want them to happen, which is which is interesting. And I think that's somehow sometimes how God works today. It's
3: easy to look at this passage and say, well, how dense these people were after all they've been through, right? To right. once again, fall into this pattern that was ultimately their destruction once again. And but But then you look at it and you say, well, you know, thousands of years later, we're basically doing the same thing in in many respects as a a culture, as a society, um, sort of forgetting, you know, Mm -hmm. forgetting. We're not listening. We're forgetting. And, you know, perhaps we're suffering some consequences of that uh, at this
0: moment in time. Yeah, it's very possible. Yeah, the the King's stories are disturbingly contemporary in many respects. And it's one of the things I love about this part of the Bible is there are parts of it where you read and you think, well, that's not how we do things in 2023 in Illinois. Uh, you know, we're not perfect, but at least we don't do that anymore. But then there's the same chapter, three verses later, you read it and you think, oh, yeah, I know people like that. <laughs> and the, the, the powerful connection between power and idolatry is one of the things i think you see in a book like this and um, we'll talk more about that in a second but that's that's very significant any other questions or comments about this passage
1: so i noticed that um Jeroboam's not really all that secure in his power. So uh-huh. in order to maintain that, he's like, oh, you guys don't really have to go to Jerusalem to do your worship. Here, uh-huh. we'll set up these other locations somewhere else, and we can we can just do it ourselves. And so they can kind of forget what their true... Um, their their roots were yep. and and he even doesn't you know follow the fact that the levites should be the ones who are the, the right. priests who had been chosen you know back in in Deuteronomy and everything when that was all getting set up right That's so it. he's not a very se- a secure leader because he realizes that if they actually go back there hmm they might remember who they were and they'll revolt and yes i won't have my power anymore
0: yeah and i, I think part of what we need to see is that you know, in many ways, Jeroboam is a powerful man, but he's also a very insecure man who is clinging and grasping to power with all of his might and is very scared of losing it, which is, you know, we're familiar with this type of person. Um, Yeah, I think I think that's very significant. Right. And Jeroboam is willing to. So we're Christians, right? We don't consider it a moral or spiritual obligation to worship God at a particular location. It might be a moral obligation to worship God in gathered worship on a regular basis, but it, you know, is it a crime to worship God at, you know, in Peoria instead of here in Naperville? No, of course not. That's not how we think of it. But, you know, another way of putting what Jeroboam is doing is changing what changing religious commitment to suit to suit him right he's cutting an image of god in his own image he's saying i'm gonna have god on my terms and no one's gonna have to go to this faraway place and no one's gonna have to get mixed up with this other country we're gonna have a northern religion for northern people and that's where you know that's where he walks out onto the thin ice and falls through right away and one of the wonderful things about the Old Testament is this, you know, the insistence that there is a God, we're not him, and we cannot craft God to suit our own whims and desires. We have to take God on God's terms. That's a hard word. It's a challenging word, but I, I think you see its relevance right here. Let me share a few more thoughts before we part. Okay so returning to this idea of david and jeroboam as paradigms or examples illustrations of kings there are many many kings after david and jeroboam partly because the northern and southern kingdoms divide so you've got two kings at the same time um and it if you read uh first and second kings or first and second chronicles do so with a pen and a pad of paper at your side it'll help you keep track of who's on the throne where both men are held up as paradigms, a pattern or example of good kingship or bad kingship. David is held up as the standard to which others aspire and the role model they should emulate. So, for instance, when Solomon prays for wisdom in First Kings 3, here's what God says. God says, and if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David, your father, did, I will give you a long life. And what you see throughout the rest of the Deuteronomistic history, throughout the rest of this unit of the Old Testament is a kind of refrain. So it's in first Kings nine, first Kings 11, first Kings 14, first Kings 15, a king. So they'll, they'll say so-and-so was king then, and he was pretty good. He walked in the ways of David, or it'll say he was pretty good. He walked in the ways of his father, David, but he did this one thing that was wrong and that was not okay. But aside from that, he walked in the ways of David. So all the good kings are evaluated with regard to David after that. So it's, you know, uh, for a long time when I was a child, people would say, oh, so and so is good, but he's no Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was the standard for what a good basketball player is. Now, of course, there's a vigorous debate about whether Michael Jordan is still the gold standard for a skilled basketball player or if it's LeBron James or someone else They're the, they were the paradigm. Similar thing going on in the Bible. Um, So you can see some examples here. This is from 2 Kings 14. In the second year of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. So you can see how this gets confusing and why you need to follow along carefully as you're reading. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Jehoadan. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the, size of the sight of the Lord, but not as his father David had done. Or 2 Kings 22, Josiah did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Only two subsequent kings merit that level of approval from the Bible, uh, Josiah and Hezekiah. There's the only two that say they were pretty much as good as David. Jeroboam's held up as the bad example. And you see this repeated phrase, the sin of Jeroboam repeated over and over again. So you can see these examples here in First Kings 15. Basha, son of Ahijah, began to reign all over Israel at Tirzah. He reigned for 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam and in the sin he caused Israel to commit. Similarly, in 1 Kings 22, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and mother and in the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin, he served Baal and worshiped him. So sometimes they'll spell out what the sins were. So you see how these guys become paradigms. The culmination of this narrative is the destruction of the Northern kingdom of Israel in second Kings 17. And then even more astonishingly to Hebrew sensibilities, the destruction of the Southern kingdom of Judah with its capital in Jerusalem. So when we next week, when we start reading the prophets, many of the prophets are writing in the time of the divided kingdom And they are attempting, successfully or unsuccessfully, to call the northern or the southern kingdom to repentance. And they're essentially saying, you guys are not worshiping God the way you should. God is not pleased with you. You need to turn around and come back to God. So much of Isaiah, the first half of Isaiah is taken up with this. Much of Jeremiah is taken up with this. A lot of these prophets are working in this mold of trying to get through to Israel. And we get this, as we discussed, we get this theological crisis when um, Jerusalem is finally sacked and destroyed. Okay, a few takeaways. So one is just the continued significance of the covenant for the Hebrew scriptures. So we saw in Genesis that there's this covenantal drama between God and Abraham. So the whole question, uh, the questions of Genesis 12 through 22 are, is God going to be faithful to Abraham? Will God in fact give Abraham what he has promised? And two, will Abraham be faithful to God? Will Abraham hold on to God, stick with God in spite of the fact, in spite of the delay in God fulfilling his promise? I think there's a similar thing going on here, except it's between God and his people. So, God's, um, God's made an unconditional promise to David. Will God be faithful to that despite their sinfulness and idolatry? Despite their trampling over social justice? Despite their oppressing the widow, the orphan, and the stranger? And is Israel going to be faithful to God? Will Israel ever turn around? So one way of thinking about what happens in the entire latter half of the Old Testament is through the lens of covenant. So hold on to that image um, because it's really important. The second thing, uh, the the second idea I would share is simply the danger of idolatry. And this is something we already talked a little bit about Um, the kingdom, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They're both destroyed in large part by Israel's persistent worship of false gods. It's one of those things where, on one hand, the biblical world is very far away from us. You know, I I rebuke my kids for a lot of things, but I never rebuke them for creating a wooden idol and worshiping it. That's just, like, not something we deal with. And yet, on the other hand, we all know very well that there are idols in our culture. Wealth and fame and power and money and prestige, and the list goes on and on. Security. Um... And I think one of the things that we can be challenged by um, as individuals and as a church body is how serious are we about placing our final faith, hope, and trust in God alone? How serious are we about that? Um, Do we like Solomon primarily worship God, but also (laughs) give a little bit of worship to these other things over here too? Um, Martin Luther famously said, whatever you fear, love, and trust most is really your God. And I think that's an interesting way of of getting our thought going on this level. How do we learn to put our, our trust in God alone? Lastly, sin and division. Um, so what, part of what we see in the stories of the kings in the Old Testament is that sin causes division. David sins, and as a result, Absalom revolts, and there's division in the United Kingdom. Um, Solomon sins, and as a result, the United Kingdom is actually divided in two between his son and another person. Um, it sounds obvious once you point it out, but I think it's it's actually a very powerful message. So one effect of the Holy Spirit is to produce unity among those who possess it, and one effect of sin is to drive people apart. I think that's the perspective of Holy Scripture. So for instance, in 1 Corinthians, the best book of the Bible, uh, this is why Paul is so upset that anyone in Corinth would would divide up into a tribe and say, I belong to Paul and I belong to this other guy. And you have different groups. Paul would be, Paul's incensed at that idea. I think that, that idea has its roots here in, in the fact that it is the sinfulness of Israel that divides it and breaks it apart, that, that breaks apart what God very much wants to hold together. So I think, you know, Think about that as we're part of the church. It's very easy for churches to split apart. It's very easy for churches to split into camps. And I think there's a powerful word for us to simply pursue the the peace, unity, and purity of the church together as we follow Jesus. Um, Those are three of my takeaways. Um, I hope you'll hang out for a while and share any other questions or thoughts you may have. We'll see you next week for Talk About Prophets and Warnings. Thank you. This has been the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks to our technical assistant, Matthew Sunblade. To find out more about our mission and ministry, visit our website, knoxpres.org. You can join us for Sunday worship in person or online as well. Thanks, and see you next week.